This is the Midlife Motorheads Podcast. Listen in as we talk about our automotive adventures in the shop, on the road, and at the track. So climb on in, tighten those belts, and let's go for a ride. We are the Midlife Motorheads. And now, broadcasting from Motorhead Central, somewhere in the Carolinas, is the hosts of the show, Gene and Trotty. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 10 of the Midlife Motorheads podcast. We want to give a shout out to Joe Robinson, affectionately known as Buddy Joe. Joe sent us an email to the website and we will send you a free Midlife Motorhead sticker. Man, that's going to look good on his truck. Gene, we did something a little bit different this time. We took a road trip up to Race City, USA. Yeah, we sat down with an icon of NASCAR rulemaking. If you're more than a casual NASCAR fan, you've probably heard the name John Darby. You know, back in 1977, Trotty, he won the Rockford Speedway Championship in late models with driver Billy Burkheimer. I don't know if you saw Billy in his shop, but Billy still works with John today. That's right. And in 1998, he became NASCAR Bush Series director then eventually managing director of competition for all of NASCAR. Yeah, so what that means is if your team, your driver, the crew, whatever, received a penalty, John was behind that decision. And if you thought about rules changes, you know, you hear like next year there's going to be a new engine or a new spoiler rule or whatever. John was the guy that was uh, authoring that rule book. So pretty big name in the sport and uh, one of those people that, you know, maybe – didn't always hear about him, but, you know, you definitely saw him on, on television and um, at different events. So today, this 31-year veteran of NASCAR is the USAC National Technical and Safety Director for Quarter Midgets. Yep, and he's also a consultant for the World of Outlaws Modified. We had a great conversation with John in his break room of his shop, and this is what he had to say. John, welcome to the show. We're, we're really honored that you're with us today. So to kind of get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Oh, I spent the first 42 years of my life up in a town called Rockford, Illinois. It's about 75 miles west of Chicago and right about right in the center of the state, almost to the Illinois-Wisconsin border. That's where I was born and raised. Um, kind of cut my teeth in uh, motorsports up there. Um, got introduced to the sport early on when I was five years old. My dad had some stock cars then and uh, uh, brought me out to the Speedway to watch the races. And Mom brought me out a couple times every year to see the Joey Chitwood Thrill Show and all the rest of that stuff. And, wow. you know, once, once you get that bug instilled in you, it just, like, never goes away. But I remember taking my son to the racetrack early on and, and uh, the first time he smelled race fuel, oh. <laughs> it was like, this is going to be kind of cool. That'll do it. That's, that's a great thing. So um, I know that you were, an, you were a car owner when mm-hmm. you won the championship back in 1977 at Rockford Speedway. Were you ever a driver? No, I will tell you. We, uh, it was uh, 16 years old when um, a couple of meetings in the, in the garage, you know, about what would be cool to do and we decided to find an old car and make a stock car out of it in uh, uh, Rockford Speedway like many other racing facilities had this little thing called a miner's release uh, 
that you had to have signed and notarized by by mom. Um, and she made me promise that uh, that if she signed the release for me, that I would not drive the car. And oh. my, my dad was injured in 1953 at Rockford Speedway pretty severely. Um, and actually, the guy he was standing next to was a, was a fatality. And it was a midget race where uh, a midget actually jumped the wall and, yeah. and, oh, wow. and hit both of them. And it left a, it just left a bad taste in her mouth, I yeah. guess. So mm-hmm. that was the deal. If you yeah. want to go race, go race, but you're not going to drive. And then, you know, as it works out, and then this this was such a perfect uh, scenario. Uh, by the time I was 18 and, and didn't need the release, we were already too deep into our team and, yeah. and it was growing like a weed and we were getting better and everything else that that I really didn't want to regress the team by putting a new driver in it hadn't driven before because we were doing just fine with the drivers we had so yeah yeah, yeah. and it was Billy the driver at that point no no uh, an old friend of mine named uh, Chaz Conant was uh, our first driver Billy came to us uh, in like 76 so it's 70 yeah 76 it was and in 77, you won the championship. That's fantastic. So, so, John, you were with NASCAR for 31 years, and you served as the managing director of competition before you left there. Tell us about the role of director of competition. What were your responsibilities? So uh, it's pretty involved. Um, you know, a lot of folks say that they, their job is 24-7. And yeah. This one is more like 48-7 wow. because you just <laughs> – in, in any of the upper positions of NASCAR, whether it be a series director or, in this case, a managing director, <clears throat> um, I always believed myself that, that the only way you could do the job and do it correctly was to do it at 100%. Yeah. And that 100% level was every day. I mean, day after day after day. Because there's so much that's involved in servicing the race teams, yeah. um, whether whether it be a question about uh, a transporter getting into a racetrack or a new rule or a problem they're having or anything from soup to nuts. It was, yeah. it was always something. So, And I always hated, uh, tried to never give the teams uh, the answer that, I don't know, I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. Right. I wanted to make sure that I knew the answer and that they got the answer uh, as quickly as they needed it. And it was an umbrella position. You were over all the different series, correct? Yeah, for the final two years at the company, uh, I was uh, all of the national series plus the regional touring series. Yeah. So having all the answers, I mean, that's very commendable, right, that that you approached it that way. I've heard you were fair but firm. How do you feel about that description? I think it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I always always told all the teams that – when we were inside the perimeters of the fence of the garage, right, it was business. And yeah. everybody was going to get treated the same way. Um, we would work through problems that we could, and the problems we couldn't, we would have to react to. But once the garage closed and we walked out of that gate and we're on the other side of the fence, uh, regardless of what happened that day, uh, we better be saying, see you tomorrow, have a great night twisting the top off a of Bud Light, whatever it took, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was just, yeah. And I never carried it beyond that. And, 
in doing that, you develop um, just so many relationships that it really slows down uh, a lot of the disciplinary actions that you may normally have to take. Right. Because, um, <clears throat> you know, penalty notices and, and suspensions and all that, they're, they're just not good for anybody. And I always felt that if I could have a conversation with somebody and make a problem be gone immediately, yeah, uh, that was a whole lot, whole lot better, cleaner path than, than muddy in all the waters with bad press and media and all the rest of that. Exactly. Well, along those those lines, were there any teams, drivers, or crew chiefs that were especially easy to work with? Well. Um, <laughs> Or was everybody basically? I can't the same? think of anybody that was really difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, there was there was a lot of respect between uh, my staff and the competitors during our time period, and uh, it's the old, you know, it's a lot easier to pull a rope than it is to push one kind of a kind of deal, right? And even the guys um, that were very in the spotlight, so to speak. Um, you know, as officials, we we respected them be, because of the understanding um, that we did understand what their goal was for that day, for that weekend, and so on and so forth. We knew people were going to test the parameters of the rule book. We knew... Uh, people were going to go outside those parameters from time to time. But nobody did it from the officiating side. It wasn't like uh, like I had 40 guys with, with badges and clubs walking around. Right. When they found something, you know, it was thoroughly discussed. What is it? You know, does it even make a crap? You know, those kind of yeah. things. Um, and then... then Depending on the severity of the infraction, yeah, sometimes we could work through things. Um, some of them ultimately had to result mm-hmm. in a penalty. So, but uh, over time, I think uh, everybody knew that, that there wasn't any favoritism for sure, and yeah. uh, that everybody got a fair shake. Right, know, so. right. Well, changing directions a little bit. Um, I've heard that you spend a great deal of time in wind tunnel testing. What would surprise our listeners most about the impact of the wind tunnel in NASCAR? Uh, well, there, there's there's a lot of science that has brought the teams closer and closer together. A lot of it's manufacturer-driven. But, um, you know, as, as you look through an entire stock car, uh, and all the chassis and how it's built and the geometries of the front suspension and rear suspension and everything. That was an area that everybody had pretty much tried and trued on a lot of things, you know. Yeah. There was very small gains to be made. But the discovery uh, came that, oh, my gosh, there's this air out there that <laughs> can do amazing things, mm-hmm. you know. Even before wind tunnel, or before uh, a lot of wind tunnel test- testing, you know, Earnhardt used to say he could see the air at Daytona and Talladega. Yeah, yeah. 
And it kind of was actually a, a, a little bit of a joke, but he probably couldn't see it, but he knew what it was doing mm-hmm. from his experience right. and knew how to react to it and how to mm-hmm. use it to his advantage. And as that grew into sophisticated wind tunnel testing, uh, that became more and more apparent because uh, it's incredible what a what a small quarter-inch lip in the right place on the race car will do mm-hmm. as far as making downforce or correcting mm-hmm. balance or increasing side forces. And today the the engineers on the teams are all so knowledgeable about aerodynamics and everything uh, that they went to work on it and, and still are today. Um, NASCAR, we did our best to control it by keeping the general shapes of the, the body the same. Uh, we understood that it was okay to have different characters for headlights and grills and stuff, but the, the basics of the, the frontal area of the car, the width and the height of the nose, and the, how the roof was configured and where the spoilers were located, we kind of kept our finger on all of that, which, again, evened everybody back up a little mm-hmm. bit. But, uh, you know, the science quickly went then from the air that was passing over the top of the car to the barrier air underneath the car, which was a whole nother world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what, uh, what's still ongoing. Um, huge, huge advances have been made in it. Um, anything stick out about arrow, like something you found that a team was doing or anything like that? No, oh, everybody rubbed and pushed and, you know, did what they needed to do. Um, there was opportunities for, for not only directing air the, a special way through the, the front of the car, as there was removing air from under the car back mm-hmm. by the rear axle area that that really really helps with some downforce and that was there was some cat and mouse going on there but uh, but every I mean everybody was pretty much aware of the same thing so yeah you know it was I don't, I'd never say if one does it it's okay for all to do it. But if one does it and everybody else knows what they did, and then we stopped the one and nobody else did it. So that, that helps a lot. But. Sure. So, John, looking back over these 31 years that, that you spent in NASCAR, what, would, what was your best day at the track? What really stands out in your mind? It's like, that was a great day. You know, um, not so much as director of competition, but as series director, um, when you watched a race – that even though you were a part of the sanctioning body that was controlling the race, when you watched the race from the control tower, and it was one of those races that got you to your, the edge of your seat, um, the same as it would a race fan, Yeah, and you knew it was an awesome race, uh, when that day ended, that was those were some of the biggest thrills because that's what, <clears throat> that's what we were there for, is mm-hmm. to... To entertain the fans, and probably the one that sticks out the most was a uh, it was the championship race in Homestead, Florida, in 2011 between uh, Tony Stewart and Carl Edwards. Where when they arrived at the racetrack, they were they were tied or one point apart. I can't remember. And then Tony got into uh, some debris early and damaged the front of the car and made pit stop after pit stop after pit stop and they got him fixed back up and and actually ran Edwards down and passed him and 
was it was just one of the most awesome races I ever remember. <clears throat> That's fantastic. So, what do you miss about not being at the track so much? Because you, you were there like what five days a week? Uh, four days a week. Four days. So, yeah, um, that's an easy answer. It's it's all the people. The people. The people. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's the <clears throat> relationships I had with the, with all of the teams, the parts vendors, the Goodyear Tire and Rubber folks, the Sunoco Fuel. Yeah. And a lot of the media members too. You know that you you got to know and. You know, so many times people say it's a it's a big family deal, but it really is once you're involved in it that much. Uh, it almost has to be because you're in a bubble. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know there is no mm-hmm. life other than that uh, when you're when you're involved in it. That's your universe, right? It's yeah, it, completely. Well, your job was obviously very serious, but there has to be some funny moments in your career. Can you tell us uh, one of your funniest race stories? Yeah. Um, The first one that would come to mind would be the Daytona 500. And I can't remember exactly what year it was, Mm -hmm. but the the track came apart down in the lower groove of turn one. Um, And not, not just graveled. I mean, we had a, we had a full size pothole about, Three feet wide, (laughs) (laughs) enough that we had to red flag the race. And, you know, there was all kinds of ideas and contemplation of what we should do or Mm -hmm. not do. And uh, it it wound up to where uh, I radioed the officials that were down in the garage and uh, asked them to go to every transporter and get every gallon of Bondo that was on the transport. <laughs> and we wound up with about 60 gallons of Bondo, and we had a crew down in the, in the corner, and uh, they just uh, started mixing right on a big piece of plywood and the shovels. And, uh, That's incredible. Mixed man. it up. We filled the hole, finished the race, and it never came apart. I've got a. <laughs> That's got to be the only time that Bondo was mixed with a shovel yeah. <laughs> on a piece of plywood. That's amazing. That yeah. is amazing. I've got a piece of it in my office in here. I'll show it to you before you leave. But it took rubber. It was amazing. It was. It stayed right there. Well, well, since we're talking about ingenuity, what's what's like the the best story with regard to the? I'm not going to say breaking the rules, but bending of the rules. What was what's that one thing you walked away thinking that was pretty good? There's been a couple of them, um, you know, uh, in in the, the the engineers and the science, the crew chiefs, they're all they're just so smart. Uh, I'm going to leave the names out of. That's out fine. Of this. Please do. Um, yep. But we did have a team that uh, we discovered uh, actually at Dover, <clears throat> and the longer they raced, the higher the back of the car got. Not, I mean, without pit stops, it wasn't pit stops that somebody came in and yeah. jacked mm-hmm. it up, right? Um, they had uh, figured out a shock build that actually kind of worked like a hydraulic jack, and from the shock movement, very subtly, not an inch at a time, mm-hmm. I mean, just it would just pump itself up. up. And we first noticed that um, uh, it was in a post-race deal, where we were pushing the cars through the height sticks. 
and uh, one of the cars was high. And typically, when we had a car that was high or low, we would always allow it to set for a while mm-hmm. to let it kind of stabilize back from coming on. And she dropped down right back into the green on the height stick. So there was nothing we could do at that time. But then mm-hmm. we started uh, we started setting up some high speed cameras and stuff around the track to watch, and you could actually see where it would the car would come up. Self jacking. Yep. That's yeah, pretty cool. So, <laughs> Yeah, and all kinds of stuff for Daytona and Talladega with hydraulics that would let the car down and you know anything. That, it's it's at Daytona and Talladega you want to get it out of the air, right? yeah, and everywhere else you want to get it up in the air to try right. to right. grab some more air. But uh, there's there's a definitely a lot of ingenuity. That's pretty cool. Sport. That's what I appreciate most about it. Yeah, I like the things. Oh, like and that. that that was the fun. But I mean, you know, that's. Like I said, we weren't out headhunting, but when those things came to us, you first had to really take a look, understand what what was going on, and you always had a chuckle inside because it was just so cool. It's yeah. Like, you know, yeah. It's yeah. like, how do I penalize this guy for doing this? Because this is really neat. Yeah. But, you know, that's... That's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, many in the sport say that, you know, things have changed. What do you think that the NASCAR fans miss most? Oh, geez. I don't know because the, you know, the, all the change that's going on right now is so complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, NASCAR realizes um, that, that, that a lot of effort has got to be put into not just reconnecting with the old fans, Base. but yeah. finding a way to keep the young at hearts interested in mm-hmm. in the sport and coming. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really difficult. Yep. And it's it's not NASCAR's fault. It's not the economy's fault. It's not it's a, it's an accumulation of everything that's happened in our world. Mm-hmm. You know. Everything from from cell phones to internet to everything. And you know, uh, even my kids They'll watch a race, but my grandkids, it's gonna be they're gonna be hard pressed to watch one because they would rather be looking at an iPad, looking at a cell phone. And you see so many younger people today that, you know, they're not gonna sit still for three and a half hours to watch a race. You know, mm-hmm. they're gonna they're gonna watch the start on whatever their mobile device is and throughout the day check back in to see what the leaderboard looks like. Right. You know, we we grew up in an era <clears throat> when the only the only way that the sport was accessible to us was some very scattered broadcasts, mm-hmm. radio. You know, with Crystal Common, uh, Conamaki, yes. CBS, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Radio, or you drove a thousand miles and bought a ticket and went and watched a race live. That was no different. For for NASCAR stock car racing than it was for football or baseball mm-hmm. or anything else, you right. know the the access to the sport was just so short. So um, I think that's that's kind of what exploded the fan base mm-hmm. because people loved to see you know when they went and when they were there uh, because I'll tell you the a live experience at a NASCAR race as good as TV is. There's no comparison when when you can 
smell the tires, you can smell the exhaust, you can hear the noise, you can feel the wind from the cars. That's those are all the components that, regardless of what television does, yeah, it won't, it can't replace that. Right. You know what I mean? So, what NASCAR is working really, really, really hard on is how to how do they how do they find that happy median to bring people to, back to the live events still give them what they need on their on their mobile devices mm-hmm. uh, and maybe even special special stuff on their mobile devices when they're at the racetrack you know? right yeah. because um, sad but true right uh, the, the the baby boomers are dying off they're you know they're at their end of the ropes and and it's not a surprise that that group was the largest fan base NASCAR right. ever had. We were, we were the ones that bought a car when we were 14, knowing we couldn't drive to right. 16, and worked on it for two years and made sure it was ready. You know, uh, Today, shoot, kids turn 16, 17, 8, they don't care about it. I know... One of the guys that works for us here, his son didn't get his driver's license until he was 19 years old because he just didn't feel like he had to have one, you know. Couldn't yeah. imagine that growing up, Yeah, right? No. And now either. they, like, shoot an Uber, right? Boom, jumping in yep. somebody yep. else's car. So yep. couple that with the lost interest in the automobile because the the only interest left in the automobile is the, the technical things, you know, right. the Bluetooth and all of the things that are currently on the cars. There's no, there's not as much performance interest in from the younger groups, you know. As long as it gets from point A to point B, that's really yeah, all they yeah, care let about. Me, let me buy a, a Kia for mm-hmm. eighteen grand and drive it for a hundred thousand miles and never lift the hood, throw it away and get another one. Why yeah. change the oil? Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> why it came with oil when I bought it, didn't it? You know, didn't it come with oil? That's right. What advice would you give to a new driver? Ah. Uh, and I don't know if I can actually speak to that in a wise sort of way, <laughs> um, because that that component of the sport has changed so much, or mm-hmm. especially over the last five years. Uh, years ago, you you started in a go kart and worked your way up, and kept hoping somebody mm-hmm. would notice you. And it's 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 still got some remnants of that today, but. At the same time, uh, Dad's wallet will advance you a lot sooner than what yeah. you used to be able to. So, What about the crew chief level? What, what advice would you give a new crew chief? A good crew chief is still, in my mind, the most valuable asset that the team has. Um, I'm not an engineering fan <laughs> because engineers can never finish a project. <laughs> right? And if you look at past history of not all of that long ago in NASCAR of the 100% engineering based teams right they're no longer here you know Everham Motorsports isn't here 100% engineering based Red Bull Racing no longer here 100% you know and other teams that found themselves getting caught in the trap of engineers running their teams uh, have have a lot of uh, reversed, you know, to put put the crew chief back in charge. Now, with that being said, you have to have engineers today. You couldn't yeah. race without mm-hmm. them. Absolutely have to. It's not that, that 
they're not a value because they are. They're an extreme value, but they need to be managed by somebody. Right. And that guidance. And that guy, in my mind, is the crew chief. Yeah. How about a car owner? Car owners are, that, that's, uh, you look today, right? You look at Rick and Jack Roush and Roger Penske, Joe Gibbs, uh, we were talking about fans that were baby booing her boomers, you know, yeah. uh, as successful as all of those cats are, uh, they're getting older and hopefully they've, they've groomed somebody for succession. Right. And in most cases they have, um, there's such an investment for a car owner. Um, obviously NASCAR wouldn't exist without them. Right? Yeah, right. true. Right. But uh, it's very difficult uh, to get in 100% today. Um, you, you, can, uh, you, can build a, you can build a car, you can buy an engine, you can do all of that. But, but to, to come in and really be successful enough to make it stick and stay there without the help of a manufacturer or a, a really good sponsor, it's very difficult. So. The car owners, I think, out of the all of the different parts and pieces of the sport, were probably the ones I respected the most. Yeah. So, for people who've hung with us and listening this far into the podcast, they're all shouting the same thing. Give us an Earnhardt story. What's your best senior story? <laughs> uh, well, we all know Dale was a character. Uh, Probably, probably the in when he first put Dale Jr. in a DEI bush car. Uh, he came down to my trailer one day and opened the door, closed the door, sat down, kind of lanked out over the couch like he normally would. And he said, well, you, how you, how's my kid doing? I said, he's doing all right. He said, okay. He said, uh... I need you to make him a, a racer. And I said, do what? He says, I need you to make him a racer. I said, oh, I, said I think that's your job, ain't it, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, it is. He said, but I can't be as hands-on to him when he's competing as you are. He says, all I'm asking you is to keep him in line, keep him straight, don't let him get in trouble. Uh, if he gets out of line... Be afraid to react. Just, just help me get through that part of it because he's a good kid and he's gonna make it. But I want to make sure that somebody's kind of there helping me to watch. I said, yeah, I can do that. So about good dad. Good dad. About mid-season, we were uh, we were in Pikes Peak, Colorado, and Dale. Uh, I think it was ninety. Shoot, I can't remember. It was the year that. Dale and Matt Kenseth were like back and forth, mm -hmm. head, head with points. And uh, for some reason, Dale just run all over the top of a, a lap car that was there. Um, I don't know if the car chipped up or whatever, but he just drove up, he just drove right over the top of him, wrecked his car, did the whole deal. <laughs> so I find him for it. This is Junior. Dale Jr., yeah, I find him for it. It was the first penalty in the upper leagues of NASCAR racing. 
Senior made him write the check out of his own checkbook and bring it to me. <laughs> but a couple of weeks later, we were at Indianapolis. Uh, it was back when the Bush cars used to race at IRP. And uh, two laps to go in a race, and Matt Kenseth dumped somebody coming off turn four, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the race finished. It was a no call. So the next day, I was over at the brickyard for the for the cup race. I'm standing in the cup trailer, and I get this god awful pain up in my right shoulder. I turn around, and I can see the the claw that's pinching me. So I knew who it was, and he says to me, he says, "Hey, he says, uh, I asked you to watch over the kid and." and not cut him any slack and take care of him. He said, but uh, what the hell are you going to do with that Kenseth boy? He said, that, <laughs> he said, that looks just... I said, well, Matt's dad ain't been to see me. He said, well, I'm here to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, we got, kind of we got a chuckle out of that. Yeah. That's uh, a good story. It's a great story. Well, John, we really do appreciate you sitting with us today doing this interview. To kind of close it out a little bit, I've got five quick fire questions. Basically, sure. just just a quick answer. Short answer. Um, your first car? Uh, it was a 1963 Oldsmobile Starfire, 394 four barrel, bucket seats. My head are looking good by the time I got my license. Very nice. Most underrated driver could be past or present. Hmm. I don't know. I think. Uh, this driver for sure is not underrated, but it, it was a driver that was so deserving of a championship. I was sorry you never got one. That was Mark Martin. Yep. I, I agree with you 100%. I totally agree. 100%. Totally agree. Of all the, the, the cars that you've seen in your career in racing, how about the best paint scheme? Wow. Ah, the candy apple red Old Spice car that uh, Tony had for just a handful of races. I can't remember what year it was. Very cool. Terrific. Circle track, road course. Well, if you had made that question short track or road course, it would have been a little different answer. <laughs> but uh, I've always been a fan of the uh, the shorter circle tracks as okay. well as the road courses. Okay. How about your favorite race venue? Richmond. Very cool. I never would have guessed that. Why? Why Richmond? Uh, it's it's a short track that's still big enough that can ra- the, the teams can race really well on. You know. Um, Terrific. Just a nice short little three quarter mile trioval. Try to this is our first guest that has his own Wikipedia page. <laughs> so thanks, John, for, for, for joining us. This has been phenomenal. This has been a great interview. Oh, Thank my you. pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. I hope everybody that listens gets some enjoyment out of it. Because oh, I think they will. We Absolutely. Could, we could sit here and tell stories all day long. So. Well, can we come back? Uh, sure we can in the future. There you go. I mean, if, if response yep. drives sure. you to oh, that. Absolutely. Perfect. We'd love to. Thanks. Thank you so much. You betcha. Thank you for 
downloading and subscribing to the Midlife Motorhead Podcast. Make sure to check out our main website at midlifemotorheads.com and all our social outlets, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.